Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another episode of our show. We're so happy to be with you. As always, we at the Institute, I want to let everybody know we're taking YouTube more seriously these days. And I invite you to check out the Christopher West channel on YouTube. I'm going to share uh, an email that we just got into our customer service department. And it says this, this was very encouraging to me. You know, I sit in the studio and I'm talking to a camera, Yes. which is not my favorite thing to do. You'd much rather have humans Give there. me real people. Yeah. And you know, I, I've learned how to talk into cameras over the years because I do it so often, but it's not my favorite thing. And sometimes <laughs> I'll be over at the studio filming several videos and, and maybe just a little discouraged because there I am talking to the camera, wondering if I'm reaching anybody. And Here's a little message we got. It says, thank you for your ministry. Because of your recent YouTube videos, particularly the ones on contraception, I have made the decision to stop contracepting. It's so encouraging to hear that. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, it's going out. It's, it's, even if it was just for that one guy. <laughs> I'm so pleased. I can't tell you how... I'm not just talking to a camera. There are real mm. people on the other side. And that mm -hmm. really blessed me. I thought I would share it with our podcast listeners just to, as a way of encouraging you. If you want to share this message, certainly please share the podcast with friends and family. Uh, but also go to the YouTube channel and share those videos. It's another great way just to get the message out there. And, you know, this is kind of cool. I say this at the beginning of most of my videos on YouTube that... Uh, by subscribing to the YouTube channel, by clicking like or leaving a comment or sharing the videos, all of that compels the algorithm that YouTube uses to share the video more. So it gets it out. You know, it's like an exponential thing. Mm -hmm. The more people share it, the more people share it. Mm -hmm. But it's not just a natural thing. There's this algorithm going on. And it kind of compels YouTube to preach the gospel. <laughs> so if you want to compel YouTube to preach the gospel, <laughs> subscribe to all those great Catholic YouTube channels out there and consider subscribing to ours as well. Ours as in what we're doing at the Institute. You, there actually are some videos of this podcast on YouTube. So if you want to see Wendy on there as well, <laughs> you can look up those videos too. But what we're doing more recently is just uh, videos that I'm doing. That's right. You know, that is so encouraging. Yeah. And just recently, I've, I've, you taught a course and uh, I've met people that, you know, are so blessed by those different ministries, YouTube and the podcast. And just like you, it's so good for my heart to know that people are receiving and benefiting from what we're doing. Thank you, all you faithful listeners out there. You're the reason we do this. We're so grateful to you. We're especially grateful to our patrons who support us on a monthly basis. If you want to learn more about the kind of formation that we offer exclusively to our patrons, you can check out the link in the show notes. Right now, in fact, we are releasing a series for teenagers and their parents on the theology of the body. Uh, Bill Dunahy, my dear colleague at the Institute, filmed that series, and that's available exclusively to our patrons if you want to check that out. There's the link in the show notes. 
So we have a question from a patron, do we not? I do indeed. And this patron asked anonymously. After six years in a sexually and emotionally abusive relationship mercy. full of porn, manipulation, and rape. Dear God, have mercy. Dear I, God, have mercy. I struggle with the concept of sex as a unitive act. Yes, understandably. The procreative part makes sense, but I cannot see sex as unitive. I am getting married, not to the abuser, soon, and I'm terrified I will disappoint him by failing to give him a mm. meaningful experience. Mm. Mm. But I just don't see how it can be meaningful. My question is, why and how is sex unitive? How can couples call it the most profound form of communication? I see praying together as a far higher form of communication, intimacy, and bonding than anything sexual. How does one make an act that is so easily used as a weapon, a means of love, intimacy, and unity? Wow. Wow. Bless you. Bless you, dear woman. Bless you, dear sister, and all you have suffered. And please know, please know that Christ, your true bridegroom, knows your suffering, is intimately united with you in all of your sorrow, in all of these brutally honest and pain-ridden questions that you are asking. Jesus, your bridegroom, is with you. He's right there. He's right in your pain. He's right in your questions, and he can, and he will, and he is leading you step by step into a renewal of your mind and your heart and the redemption of your body. Mm. There is one particular thing you said in your question that struck me. You said, I consider prayer to be a far more bonding and unifying experience than anything sexual. Okay, so much to say, uh, and we certainly can't do justice to the, the depth and importance of your question here, but I, I hope that we can give you food for thought and, and point you in a direction. John Paul II at the kind of climactic moment of his teaching in the theology of the body, says something remarkable. He says that the marital embrace itself is meant to be prayer. It's meant to be an ongoing liturgy that is offered in the domestic church, the marriage. That's the domestic church, the marriage and the family that results from that marriage. That's the domestic church. The husband is the priest of this offering. And the wife, her body is the very sign of the holy of holies in the temple. Only the priest can enter the holy of holies to offer that sacrifice. This is what God's design is for the marital embrace and this is why the enemy is after our humanity right here to twist, to disrupt, to disorient, to profane. And let me press into that word profane a little bit. 
the Latin is profanum, and it means to remove from the temple, to take outside the temple, to put in front of the temple. In other words, it's not in the temple, it's outside the temple. And my dear sister, my dear sister, this is what has happened in your mind and in your heart and in your own bodily experience with sex. It has been profaned. It has been taken outside the temple. It does not have a holy connotation. It has a connotation of, of pain and disruption. And when we're in so much pain, we can tend to think the solution to the pain, which is registered right in our bodies, is to live a, a kind of spiritual life divorced from the body. And we can end up saying things like, prayer is a more intimate experience than anything sexual. Because in that experience, the experience of the sexual has been profaned. And of course, that which is profaned is that which is not holy. But prayer here has become disincarnate. Prayer, uh, if we are living a, quote, spiritual life ruptured from our bodies, ruptured from being male, from being female, and from the whole mystery of human sexuality, that, that rupture is, is death-dealing. And, and the healing of the pain that is registered in our bodies, the healing does not come from rejecting our bodies. The healing comes from Christ redeeming our bodies. Christ does not present to us a salvation from our sexuality. He presents to us the salvation of our sexuality. And that means step by step, following his lead, following his lead, step by step, allowing Jesus into each and every one of those painful memories, painful experiences, where your heart, your mind, your body, your experience of sex was profaned. Christ alone can heal those memories by suffering them with you and leading you out the other side into glory, into resurrection, into transformation, into healing. This is the journey. It is long. It is not easy. But it is so rewarding. This is why Christ came into the world. And here I want to quote Father, actually now Cardinal Father Renero Cantalamesa, he was the papal preacher for John Paul II, for Benedict XVI, and also for Francis. And he says, salvation begins with eros, that Greek word eros, from which we get the English word erotic. Right? Salvation begins with eros, because eros, he says, is the dominant force of our humanity. And it is what is most in need of being redeemed. What does the enemy attack? He attacks our creation as male and female. Why does he attack there? Because it is human sexuality. It is maleness and femaleness and the call of the two to become one flesh that is the primordial sacrament, the primordial sign, the primordial revelation of the eternal plan of God that we would know him forever. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that we would know God 
And that biblical word Jesus uses is the same biblical word Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Sexual union as God created it to be. This is not the way we typically experience it in a fallen world. But the way God created it to be is to be the primordial sign, the primordial revelation in this world of his eternal plan that we would be one with him forever in a life-giving union of love, right? Not that God is sexual, not that heaven is going to be an eternal sexual union. No, no, no. Rather, our sexuality, the sexual experience of husband and wife as God created it to be, we know it's been messed up. We know it's been distorted by original sin. But remember those very important words of Jesus. In the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, they were naked without shame. Why were they naked without shame? Because they saw and experienced sexual desire and their own naked bodies as God created them to be as the sign of his wondrous plan of holy communion. And I want to underscore that word holy, holy communion, holy communion. Human sexuality is a call to holy communion. And that holy communion is perhaps the most profound prayer the couple can offer. Holy communion, holy communion. John Paul II says that that holy communion of man and woman in one flesh it's meant to be an expression of the liturgy, an ongoing liturgy that participates in the liturgy of Christ loving his bride, the church. How does Christ love his bride, the church? In holy communion. The two become one flesh, husband and wife. This is a great mystery, and it refers to the greater mystery of Christ's holy communion with the church. There is a path of healing. My dear sister, I'm going to suggest a few things to you. I'm going to suggest that you take a course on the theology of the body. Uh, you can do it online, you can do it in person, but please, please take the theology of the body level one course. It will be help get you on that journey. It will give you the vision you need. The scripture says, without a vision we perish. John Paul II has given us the vision in his theology of the body that can start us on this path of healing. We have the antidote to all of the sexual craziness, the sexual wounds in our own hearts. John Paul has given us the antidote here. But if we don't inject that antidote into our bloodstream, then it's not going to serve us. So I, I invite you, please find ways to inject that antidote into your bloodstream. Take a course. Uh, you could also, you and your fiancé could read uh, Good News About Sex and Marriage together. It's 150 questions and answers. And, and I'm very frank in there about my own journey, which is ongoing, of the need for sexual healing. And I, I just invite you to, to read that together, or, or maybe, here's a suggestion, read it separately, maybe 10 pages a week, then go, go in a quiet place together and just talk about it unfold the experience of your heart in reading that together. Uh, things like this, um, it may be that you need ongoing counseling. Find a good Catholic therapist. We have ones listed in our show notes to this podcast. Please take advantage of good Catholic counseling, because it sounds like you're going to need some real healing for your sexual relationship with your soon-to-be husband to be one that brings wholeness, to be one that brings hope and is not just a, 
of pouring salt on the wounds of your of your heart. And I'll, I'll, I'll close with this, and then Wendy, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts, and I know our listeners would love to hear them as well. John Paul II says something utterly remarkable in his theology. Of the, I mean, many things he says utterly remarkable, but this in particular is utterly remarkable. He says that the marital embrace is meant to be a redeeming experience that reintegrates body and soul. Right? When we experience that profaned kind of sexual activity, and this dear sister of ours has listed many examples of how it got profaned with pornography and abuse and, and, and forced sexual activity. When, when that is our experience, we are ruptured. Those experiences rupture body and soul. But an authentic marital union, where, where not where a husband and wife are perfect, because no husband and wife is perfect, but a husband and wife who come to the marriage bed, opening their broken humanity to God's healing grace, that honest embrace becomes a, 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 an experience, this is a quote from John Paul II, it becomes an experience of life according to the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is part of that embrace, the Holy Spirit works the miracle of reintegrating our bodies and our souls. This is glorious. This is glorious. Authentic marital love, authentic union in one flesh is the healing of the rupture. But spouses, again, must open themselves to the presence of the Holy Spirit for that healing to take place. Wendy, what are what are your thoughts? I just want to assure you of our prayers for you that the experience that you have had is is an experience of being attacked by the enemy and and made to be vulnerable and subject to his attack. And that is a devastating thing. And yet there's such hope Hope because Christ came to save every one of us, but hope also because you're not in that relationship anymore. Yes, thanks be to God. Hope because you have also found another relationship that is part of your story now, uh, the story of your future if you do get married. Um, and that's, you know, absolutely hopeful. So even a person who's been made forced into such vulnerability and pain, that there can be hope is what you are hinting at or, or saying when you, Christopher, say redemption. Redemption. It's hope. Hope, yes. Hope. And so how can this act be unitive? How could something that could be used as a weapon be unitive? And yet, we have to step back and see how the evil that has entered into the world that isn't part of God's plan, that isn't what he created, has so darkened our vision and so robbed us of what is simply beautiful, that the union is to become one, to come together, and it's blessed. And in fact, even new life can come from this. Like, we get robbed of how beautiful all of that is by this 
terrible pain and suffering. So I want to encourage you that you are on a hopeful journey, but it's not an easy journey. And it's so important that your fiance know about where you are in this journey, where you've been and, you know, what's, what is going on in your heart that he could at the very least understand. And probably if he's the one the Lord really intends to love you through, then he will be a great help to you on this journey. And I just, I do agree, Christopher, with what you've encouraged our listener to seek help. It's not meant to be that somehow a podcast could, you know, be the only thing that brings about, you know, such an important process of healing in your life. But yeah, everything that you've shared about God's plan for us and especially his plan for redemption um, is, is so key to trusting I have this vision. Without vision, we perish. This vision of Christ creating me for good, redeeming me for even greater beautiful good, and that he's faithful. I'm so glad you you used the word hope because it jarred a memory in my mind of a student of ours at the Institute who started a ministry called Hope's Garden, uh, precisely for women such as yourself who have been through terribly abusive relationships and to begin the journey of healing. So we'll put a link to that ministry, Hope's Garden, in the show notes, or you can simply Google Hope's Garden, and they're doing beautiful work helping very wounded women to heal from these abusive relationships. And I'll say two more things. I would invite you to meditate on the line in the creed where we say that Christ descended into hell. You have experienced a kind of living hell through the abuse of your body, which is made in the image and likeness of God, and which is forever holy. That holiness of your femininity has been abused, and in a a very real way you have descended into hell. But here is the good news. Christ has descended into those hells with you to rescue you, to save you, to heal you, to restore you, to redeem you. And I want to leave our listeners with this final thought, which is so important. I say to my students, if we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. And if you're a faithful listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard me say this before. It is this, the devil does not have his own clay. All he can do is get his hands on God's clay the clay that God made that he looked at and said, behold, it is very good. The enemy gets his hands on God's good clay and twists it, deforms it, profanes it. But the goodness is still in there. Redemption is never the throwing away of that good clay. That's a loophole, John Paul II says, to avoid the requirements of the gospel. The requirements of the gospel are are not that we throw away what the enemy has abused or twisted up, but rather that we surrender to Christ our Redeemer that which the enemy has abused and twisted up and profaned, so that Christ, who created the clay to begin with in union with his, his Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit, can recreate that clay, redeem that clay, restore that clay, This is our hope of restoration. It's real, 
It's called the good news of the gospel. Our next question is from a listener named Vibhu. Hello, Vibhu. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. I had a weird thought. I think that because I have masturbated in the past, I cannot say for sure that I've stopped it forever. I'm trying to control myself, and with God's grace and mercy, I'm sort of controlling myself, but still, I think that the only way to come out of it is to die. Am I wrong? Well, Vibhu, it depends what you mean by die. I'm thinking of what St. Paul says, that Christians are those who have allowed their sinful passions to be crucified. Hmm. We must put our sinful passions to death. Uh, so you're right in a very real way that the only way you can overcome these sinful passions is by letting them die. But that's not the final story. The sinful passions get resurrected. And I don't know of a better story that illustrates this point than the one that C.S. Lewis tells at the end of his book, The Great Divorce. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, there are, uh, there's a bus ride of, of ghosts. They're on a bus ride to heaven. And before they can pass through the pearly gates, they have to face their vices. And this one human ghost approaches the pearly gates and on his shoulder is this red lizard chattering away in his ear, and C.S. Lewis calls it the lizard of lust. And he says that as this human ghost approached the gates of heaven, there's this angel of fire guarding the gates of heaven. And he said to the ghost, would you like me to make the lizard quiet? And the ghost says, well, of course I would. And the angel says, well, then I'll kill him. And he says, whoa, whoa, you didn't say anything about killing him. I didn't mean to, to do anything as drastic as that. And he said, well, it's the only way. May I kill it? He said, well, I, 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 can't we just go through the gradual process here? Do we have to kill it outright? The gradual process is of no use at all, says the angel. May I kill it? There's this long back and forth mm. between the angel of fire and the human ghost. And the ghost is going through every excuse in the book about why he doesn't want to kill it. And let me get an opinion from another doctor. I'll take another bus back here as soon as I can. Uh, and, and, Finally, he says, the, the ghost says to the angel, well, why didn't you just kill the darn thing without asking me before I, I knew it'd be all over by now if, if you had? Mm. And he says, I cannot kill it against your will. And he, think, and he thinks, well, if you kill the, the lizard, you're going to kill me. And he says, no, no, you, it will not kill you. I need to kill the lizard, not kill you. And, and then the, the ghost says, but you're hurting me now. And the angel says, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Mm. The ghost then says, oh, I know, I think you think I'm a coward, but it's not that. I, I, and he, you know, again, all the excuses in the book. Finally, the lizard chimes in and he says, he says, be careful. Don't let him kill me. One word from you and he will. He says, now, you couldn't live without me. You, I mean, how could you possibly be a real man if you didn't have me in your life? And then the lizard says, I know, maybe in the past I've gone a little too far, but I won't do it again, I promise. You know, from now on, I'm going to be nothing but sweet fantasies and dreams, almost fresh and innocent. Don't let him kill me. The lizard's begging, don't let him kill me. Finally, the angel convinces the ghost to kind of do an inventory of his life. And he realizes how many false promises this lizard has made. Promising happiness, delivering an immediate pleasure, immediate kick, but then falling into despair. And after this long, many excuse, long dialogue, 
the ghost finally gives permission for the angel to slay the lizard. And the angel reaches out with his fiery hands. He grabs the lizard of lust. He twists its back. He breaks its neck and he flings it to the ground. And as soon as the lizard is slain, the ghost takes on radiant flesh, shining with the glory of God. And C.S. Lewis says, love is flowing out of this resurrected man like liquid. But that's not even the best part of the story. The lizard is also resurrected, but this time transformed into a great white stallion with a tail and a mane of gold. The resurrected man throws himself at the feet of the angel in gratitude. And the angel is like, up man, mount the stallion. And the gates of heaven open and it's the stallion that enables this resurrected man to ride off into what C.S. Lewis describes as the impossible steeps of life everlasting. Then C.S. Lewis says, what is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a pale, weak, whimpering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire that will be resurrected in us if we but allow the lizard to be slain. And so, Vibhu, I say to you, will you allow that lizard to be slain? That's what needs to die. And if you allow that lizard to die, that lizard will be resurrected into a great white stallion with a tail and a mane of gold, and it will be resurrected eros, resurrected erotic desire, redeemed, transformed into the stallion that will enable you to ride off into the impossible steeps of life everlasting. Christ came, as I said was it in this episode or last episode? I think it was this episode when I said Christ came not to save us from our sexuality, but to save our sexuality, right? It is salvation not from the body and the flesh and sexuality. It is salvation of the body, of the flesh, of our sexuality, of erotic desire, right? John Paul II says Christ wants us to experience the fullness of eros, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards all that is true, good, and beautiful, so that what is erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. Vibo, go for it. This is the path. This is the way. Let the lizard be slain and let the stallion rise up. Be not afraid. Our next question is from Alexis. She says, Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Gosh, I can't begin to thank you for how you have impacted my spiritual journey. What a blessing. We're so glad, Alexis. We're, we're blessed to know that you're a faithful listener out there. Here's my question. Sometimes when I think about marriage, it seems hard that it unlocks some kind of mystery or provides a language to speak of how I'm destined to be in complete union with God. It seems that a marriage would shift my focus from this ultimate goal to providing what seems like unnecessary attention to my spouse. I understand that loving others is a form of loving God, but I worry that if I'm called to marriage, it would be more of a distraction from the ultimate goal rather than being an aid to getting there. How have you worked through this question? 
Wow, that's a fun one. It would take us about 26 years to answer it because <laughs> that's how long we've been together. <laughs> yeah, how have we worked through that one? Well, it's been a long 26-year journey. But I, I want to comment on what you said, Alexis. From one perspective, you're reminding me a little bit of what St. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where St. Paul is saying to the people he was writing the letter to in Corinth that he wished, in a general sense, to spare people some of the anxieties that come with marriage. And he says, I wish that you would have an undivided heart like mine, that you would be devoted to the one spouse. And, you know, we can read into this a bit, and we can recognize, as biblical scholars will point out, that St. Paul was under the impression that Christ was returning imminently. Mm -hmm. And if I thought Christ was returning imminently, and somebody came to me for pastoral advice as to whether or not I should get married, I would say, well, I, I don't think there's any need to, because the bridegroom's coming back very soon. Uh, but even St. Paul, having said that, he says then, I'm not saying this to restrict you, because some have the gift of celibacy, and some have the gift of marriage. In fact, the word he uses is charism, right? So his advice, his pastoral advice to remain single or celibate for the kingdom, he says, I'm not placing this as a restriction. I'm inviting you to discern what charism, what gift do you have? If you have the charism of celibacy for the kingdom, and Alexis, maybe you do, right? Maybe you do. If you have that charism, Alexis, then don't get married. But if you have the charism of marriage, if that's your gift, if that's your calling, then embrace it with total confidence that it will become the path through which you embrace the mystery of Christ. Marriage, let us remember, marriage is a sacrament, and it's not only one of the seven sacraments. John Paul II says marriage is the foundation of the entire sacramental order. He calls it the prototype of all of the sacraments. Why? Because the goal of all of the sacraments is to unite Christ with his bride the church, and to unite the bride, the church, with Christ, so that the bride might conceive eternal life within her. That's what makes marriage the model and prototype of all of the sacraments. Now, let's distinguish here. It's important. If marriage is the foundation of the sacramental order, we must recognize that the Eucharist is the summit of the sacramental order. Uh, you might say that marriage is at the trailhead of the mountain that, if we follow the path the whole way up, will take us to the summit, which is the Eucharist. And all of this is contained in Ephesians chapter 5, and the keystone of Ephesians chapter 5, John Paul tells us, is found in verses 31 and 32, where St. Paul links the one flesh union of marriage with the one flesh union of Christ and the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. St. Paul is just quoting right out of the book of Genesis there. 
And then he says, this is a great mystery. In the Greek, which has a nice ring to it, this is a mega mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. This means a marriage that is lived well, a marriage that is lived out as the sacrament that it really is, as the mega mystery that it really is. It is not a distraction to union with Christ. It is the very means by which that couple finds themselves ever more intimately united with Christ and united with the church because they're living their love, they're living their union precisely as a sacrament of Christ and the church. Now, part of her question was, how have you and I lived that out? Well, uh, 25 and a half years ago, when you and I got married, we already had this theology in our heads. Uh, you know, I, I knew that you couldn't be my ultimate fulfillment. I had that in my head. Um, you know, there are two bookends in the Bible, begins with the marriage of man and woman, ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. And we always have to remember, Christ says, in the resurrection, we're no longer given in marriage. Why? Because you no longer need a sacrament to point you to the heavenly marriage when you're participating in the heavenly marriage, right? The catechism says that there's a danger in, in a sacramental economy. In, in other words, in, in the economy of God distributing his graces, which he does through the physical stuff of this world, right? Right in and through our bodies, in our union as husband and wife, you and I, Wendy, our bodies become a channel of grace to one another. This is the sacrament of marriage. But there's a danger here that we turn the icon into an idol, right? Our union is meant to be a sign of our ultimate fulfillment. And Alexis spoke to this. You know, she said, I could almost consider, I, I, I would be a concern that I would consider uh, my love for my husband as a, as a distraction. And it can be if we idolize human love. Uh, the idol does not lead us to Christ, it leads us away from Christ. The icon is the window to heaven. You're, we're walking through the doorway of married love into divine love, but when we turn the icon into an idol, it's like the doorway closes and we get stuck at the doorway. And although when you and I got married, we had this great theology in our minds, uh, we realized some years into married life that our hearts were, were still bent in some ways towards one another, and we were idolizing our relationship. We were hoping and expecting that the other person would be perfect fulfillment, which no human being can ever be. And so I, I often tell people, do not hang your hat on a hook that cannot bear the weight. And you and I, we, we've told this story many times. Um, I write about it in, in my books. I talk about it in on YouTube. We've talked about it many times on this podcast about the the healing that you and I have needed to go through and continue to need to go through uh, because it's a danger, especially in a good marriage, it's a danger that you end up idolizing the relationship and expecting it to do something for you that it, it can't do. So there is a need for a real healing and a purification, and that purification involves a letting go of our idolatry and a restoration of the iconography or 
sacramentality of human love so that it really does become a doorway rather than a closed door or a block to heavenly realities, the mystery of Christ in the church. I think I obviously agree with all that you're saying, and I, I think about Alexis's question, and I've I've thought about that very thing, and many people who've studied theology of the body or, or just kind of taken it in and said, okay, let me think about this a little bit more, have, have come upon this same question. Well, you know, if this is all pointing me to what my relationship with God is meant to be, why, why bother with marriage at all? And I really like what you quoted from St. Paul and talked about charism and gift, because I think it doesn't, it also doesn't take us very long to realize that while we're all destined for union with God and it's the most meaningful thing of human existence, there also is a sense of mission in this life. And many times when we feel drawn to something, including to loving another person, it's a revelation of a certain mission that the Lord is giving us here and now. And if we would say, feel a mission to um, be a teacher and then start teaching and have everything go wrong in our classroom and feel instead of fulfilled that we're doing nothing right and maybe this wasn't my mission after all or, you know, to question because things are challenging. Is that a distraction or is that like part of what the Lord was up to in calling us to that mission? You are going to learn and become successful as a teacher. But yes, it is hard right now. And there's a deepening of your union with the Lord through working through the challenges in that, say, mission field of whatever it is. And that's also true in our marriages, that if we find it challenging, we could think that that's distracting. And yet, because of the incarnation, because of Christ becoming one of us, we can realize that any challenge in a human relationship is an opportunity to open our hearts up to the Lord even more and deepen our relationship through our living out of our mission. So I just want to encourage Alexis and all of our listeners that the Lord is so faithful and good, and He does lead us even through our desire to love a specific human being and to love the specific human beings He brings into the world through that union. All of that is a revelation of his mission for us that he doesn't just send us out on on our own, but he's journeying with us. And through that living out of our lives, our meaningful, valuable, mission-filled lives, he's drawing us ever closer and so deepening what he has in store for us as that deep union with him. There's no doubt in my mind, Wendy, that our marriage, our sacrament, has been a, a channel for me of so many heavenly graces, and that I have grown in intimacy with Jesus, I've grown in intimacy with Mary, I've grown in intimacy with the church and the communion of saints in and through learning, and we know it has been painful at times because we're both broken and have both been in need of, of deep purifications, but it's in and through our desire to really learn what it means to love one another that we've had the occasion to realize the purifications we needed. Mm-hmm. 
and open to those graces which come right to us through the sacrament of marriage to enable us more and more to become the men and women we, the man and the woman that you and I are created to be. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that our, our marriage is a vocation to holiness. And so I'd say to you, Alexis, don't get married unless it's your calling, it's your vocation, it's your charism. And if it is your charism, receive it as the gift from heaven that it is, the path that will lead you to the eternal marriage of the Lamb. We're all destined for it. And in fact, I love this line from the Catechism. It says, the dignity of the human being, this is Catechism number 27, the dignity of the human being rests above all on the fact that every human being is called to communion with God. And it's not a generic communion. You, Alexis, in your unrepeatable, unique humanity, you are called to communion with God. You, Alexis, are called to become that gift to God, receiving his gift and returning that gift to him. St. John of the Cross says, Lord, what gift do we possibly have to give you that could equal the gift that you've given us? And then he realizes, oh, we could give God the gift that he's given us because the gift that he's given us is the Holy Spirit. Now we have the Holy Spirit to give back to God. Guess what we're doing now? We're participating in the eternal exchange of the Trinity. Astounding, glory be to God in the highest. This is our supreme calling. This is our supreme destiny. We are all unique, unrepeatable, indispensable, irreplaceable gifts of life and love. And we must become what we are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.